The scripture reading for this morning is Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 22. Please stand for the reading of God's word. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. An intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Why don't we pray first? Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us. For the sake of your Son, our Savior. Amen. All right, so we're returning to Galatians after several weeks away, so this is a good time to remind us where we've been, what Paul has been saying to this point. Uh, Paul's main argument throughout Galatians, the one thing that he wants to make sure that people get is simply this, that you don't add anything to your walk with God in order to be right with God. You are right, right with God through faith in Christ and Christ alone. There's nothing that must be added to that in order to be right with God. He had to write this letter to this, these churches in Galatia in the first century because those churches had been infiltrated by false teachers who were saying, you know, in fact, you do need to add something to your relationship with God in order to be right with God. You do need to add something to faith in Christ because faith in Christ alone is not enough. Namely, you need to add works, specifically the works of the Old Testament law. Essentially, you need to become Jewish in order to be saved. And Paul wanted his readers then and now now to this very day, to make sure that we get the message, that the gospel, salvation, is through faith in Christ alone, by God's grace alone, nothing else, nothing added, no gospel plus, just grace. So Paul spends the first two chapters of Galatians defending this gospel that he's been proclaiming. In chapter 1, verses 1 through 10, he makes the point of saying, no one commissioned me to come to you. God sent me to you. That's the point he's making in chapter 1, the first 10 verses of chapter 1. God sent me. And then in verses 11 through 24, he says, and no one gave me this gospel. And I didn't make it up either. God is the one who gave me this gospel. God gave me the gospel. God is the one who sent me to you. So that's chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, Paul makes the point of saying, you know what? I did go to Jerusalem. 
I did present my gospel to those apostles who had you know, authority in Jerusalem, and they confirmed that this gospel I'm proclaiming to you is, in fact, the one true gospel. So even though they're not the ones who sent me to you, and they're not the ones who gave me this message, God sent me, and God gave me the message, still, they did confirm that this is the one true gospel that I've been proclaiming to you. And then in chapter 2, verses 11 through 21, he gives a case study for the validity of his gospel. He says, listen, even Peter, that pillar of the faith, when Peter wasn't living in line with the truth of the gospel that I've been proclaiming to you, I confronted Peter with this gospel, and Peter was rebuked. That's how valid, that's how set in stone, how much this gospel that I've been proclaiming to you is from God and God alone. So that's what Peter, I'm sorry, that's what Paul has been saying in chapter 1 and 2, he spent two chapters just making the case concerning the validity of the gospel and him as the messenger of it. And then in chapter 3, Paul turns from talking about himself and talking about his gospel to talking directly to the Galatians. And he kind of grabs them by the scruff of the neck in chapter 3, verse 1, when he says, who has bewitched you, right? Right? Oh, foolish Galatians. And then he goes on in the first part of chapter 3 in verses 2 through 5 to say, listen, just think with me for a second about your own spiritual experience. How is it that you received the Spirit of God? Was it through law-keeping or was it through faith? Of course, the answer was through faith in Christ that they received the Spirit of God. And then in verses 6 through 9 of chapter 3, he says, okay, guys, now let's think for a second about Abraham. How was Abraham counted righteous before God? Was it by law-keeping or was it by faith? And the answer, of course, it was by faith. Okay. And then in verses 10 through 14, he drives the point home by saying, listen, Jesus redeemed you from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for you. So why would you turn to the law for life? The righteous live by faith. And that brings us back to our passage for this morning, for where we are here in verses 15 through 22. Now, it was hard looking at 15 through 22, and then 23 through 29, because there's overlap in these passages. So what we're going to do this morning is look at 15 through 22, but in particular, we're going to look at 15 through 18, and then 21 through 22, and then next week we're going to come back, and the passage that we'll read is 19 through 29. Next week we're going to answer, why then the law? But this week, we're going to demonstrate the fact that the law adds nothing to the gospel. All right, so that's what we're doing this week. The law adds nothing. And then next week, so why the law? That's the question that Paul wants to answer for us. We'll get to that next week. But for now, this issue of the fact that the law adds nothing to the gospel. All right. So you may be thinking, great. So what? What does that have to do with my life today? I mean, interesting, great, good to understand this stuff in the Bible. Bible history is interesting. Theology is important. Yada, yada, yada. Theology is important precisely because this matters for us today. You see, we are very prone to give ourselves to some law as a means to life. 
That's what the false teachers were saying to the churches in Galatia. You need to look to God's law in order to live. We're prone to do the same kinds of things. We're prone to create for ourselves some law or look to God's law as a means for life rather than looking to the gospel, specifically to Jesus as the means of life. I mentioned last week, you know, kind of joking around about uh, Quitter's Day. Remember Quitter's Day, January 19th, is the day that, statistically speaking, people tend to give up on their New Year's resolutions. January 19th, right? But listen, think about what our resolutions tend to become. Laws. I, I've got this resolution. I want, to, I want to live a better life. So I need to create a law. That's my resolution, but, and there's some way in which I'm going to apply that, but ultimately the way I get to that is to create some law for myself. And if I can keep the law, I'll have a better life. Even in our New Year's resolutions, whether you make them or not, and, and how half-heartedly you think about them or not, there's still often this idea of a law. If I can keep the law, then I'll find life. We've all had pastors, we've all had Parents, we've all had teachers who have more or less said to us, if you really want to be happy, if you really want to grow, if you really want to be right with God and be pleasing to him, keep your eyes on the law, not so much on the promise. The promise is good. Grace is important. You put your trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation. But once that happens, keep your eyes on the law. Pay attention to the law. Follow the rules, follow the regulations, then you can have the good life. But forget about the promise. Don't, don't think so much about the promise. Now, no one would say that, but it's almost by default, right? If, if all of your attention is being drawn to the law, and essentially what you're hearing is keep the law and you'll be right with God, then by necessity your attention is turned away from, your, your gaze has been averted from that which is in fact the source of life, and that is your relationship with Jesus Christ. We're all tempted to seek life in some law, either God's law or laws that we've made up for, for ourselves. I want to be happy. I must need a law. There must be a path. I want inner peace. There must be a law I can follow, a set of rules, something I can do. I want to be a better friend or a better spouse. Give me a law. The, the, the self-help section in Barnes & Noble should be labeled the law section, right? Because it's all about rules. Keep these rules and you'll attain whatever it is that your heart desires. But you won't. What your heart actually desires is something that can't be attained except through Christ and faith in him. So, you know, what happens? What happens when all you see is law? What happens when you've given yourself over to salvation, whether you're thinking about salvation in that sense of being right with God, or whatever salvation means to you, a, a happier life, a better marriage, um, success, whatever. Whenever you give yourself over to law-keeping for that, whatever that salvation is, you will inevitably become proud. I'm doing it. Look at me. Or, more likely, crushed. Paul belabors this point. He has given all of, all of Galatians, basically, up to this point, chapters 1 through 3, 
belaboring this issue that the law will not bring life. When all you see is law, grace becomes unreal to you. And Paul wants to make sure, and God has preserved Galatians for us in order to be sure that grace is real to us. Not just in that moment when we first put our trust in Jesus for our salvation, but increasingly over our entire lifetime, grace is becoming more and more real to us because we're looking to Jesus for life and not to the law, be it God's law or a law we've made up for ourselves. Keep your eyes on the promise. That's the message of this passage for this morning. So three things we're going to see real quick. First, the nature of the promise. Second, to whom the promise is made. And then third, the implications of the promise for our faith. So the nature of the promise, the, who, to whom the promise was made, and then third, the implications of the promise for our faith. So first, what is the nature of the promise? There's two things we can say about it. First, the promise secures the blessing. It's a promise that secures the blessing from God. So take a look at verses 17 and 18. Paul says there, this is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So the, the blessing is referred to here as an inheritance. This inheritance is secured by promise, God's promise. So what is this inheritance? There's two ways in which we can think about the inheritance from the Old Testament, from the way in which God interacted with Abraham, the promises that God made to Abraham. First, it had to do with land. God promised to Abraham and to his descendants that they would inherit the land of Canaan. So take a, a read with, here, Genesis 13, 15. For all the land that you see, this is God talking to Abraham, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. And then in Genesis 17, verse 8, God says to Abraham, and I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So there's an inheritance. God is saying, I'm going to give this land to you. But God also made a promise to Abraham that through Abraham and his offspring, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. So this promise of blessing to the nations is bound up with this idea of an inheritance, Secured by promise from God. So in Galatians 3.8, Paul references there the fact that God said to Abraham, in you shall all the nations be blessed. In you, Abraham. And then in Genesis 22.18 and 26.4, God says to Abraham that, through, that the nations of the earth will be blessed through your offspring. The blessing given to Abraham is the promise that the land of Canaan will be his and his offsprings, offspring, and that the nation of the earth will be blessed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed through them. So then how is this blessing secured? The, bre- the blessing is secured through promise, God's promise. Now this matters. If the, this is the whole problem with law-keeping. If you look to law-keeping as the means of securing the blessing, then you've totally got things wrong because what God has said to Abraham is that it's actually according to promise that you'll receive the blessing, not law-keeping. 
All right, so the inheritance was given to Abraham by a promise. Take a look at verse 18. In verse 18, it says, For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. That word gave there emphasizes that it is a free gift. It is a charis, a grace gift. The perfect tense of the verb there indicates you know, it's past action with a continuing effect, meaning this is, this is a done deal. I'm not going to go back on it. This grace that I've given you is going to continue to have effect in, you know, forever. It's not going to come to an end. So then, if the inheritance comes by promise, then the only way to receive it is by faith. It can't be obtained. That would, that would turn things upside down. It would completely, you know, destroy the idea of promise to say, I'm going to earn the, that which is promised. I'm going to work for an inheritance. That's not the way an inheritance works. You can't work for a promise. You wait for it. And that's the point that Paul is trying to make through this passage. The only way to receive a promise is to trust in the one who gave the promise that he'll fulfill his word. So, but secondly, this promise is not only, the blessing is not only secured by God's promise, the promise is bound by a covenant. This is important. This is what we see back in verse 15. Verse 15, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, covenant language is not contract language. It's not like we tend to think about human contracts. The way that Paul's referring to this here probably has more to do with a last will and testament kind of approach. And in particular, he's probably thinking about the Greek notion of last wills and testaments, which is essentially this. Once you've written up the last will and testament and you've submitted it to the public records office, it can't be changed. We can make amendments all the time to our last wills and testaments. Our Laws on that are based more on Roman laws. Greek laws, you didn't make a change. Once, once it was submitted to the public records office, it couldn't be changed. And, and Paul is making an argument from the lesser to the greater. He's saying if this is true, even at the human level, how much more so when it's God who has written the covenant? When God is the one who has ratified it, it can't be changed. It won't be changed. That's the point that Paul is making here in this passage. In verse 17, he's saying that the covenant with Abraham preceded the law. This testament of God's, this promise that what he has said would happen, um, the blessings would be given not by works but by grace, the promise would be given, it must be believed, the law came later. And because the promise, the covenant can't be changed, then the law must not add anything to it. Now, we're to the point now where Paul answers the rhetorical question, well, why then the law? Just wait till next week. We'll come back to that. But the point we want to make this morning is that the law adds nothing to the promise. There's nothing that we do to inherit the promise. The law has a good purpose. We're going to see it next week. The law is given for a reason to actually enable us to better experience the grace of God as we turn from it to Jesus. But the law doesn't become a means by which we obtain that which has been promised. And Paul wants to make sure we get that. Now, let's turn secondly to this question. To whom were the promises given? 
Take a look at verse 16. Paul writes there, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Now Paul understood Hebrew grammar. And this works the same way in, in English as well. Right? Offspring can be singular in a singular sense, but also can be singular in a collective sense. Right? Offspring can refer to one, or the offspring of Abraham can refer to many, like all of those. And Paul uses the singular noun in a collective sense in Romans. So it's not like he's unaware of that. He uses it in the singular sense here in order to drive home a very important theological point. The point that he's driving here is that ultimately, the one who is the recipient of the promises is Jesus. This ties the scriptures together. If you ever are tempted to think, man, there's this hard and fast line you know, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, just remember that the promise to Abraham is ultimately given to Jesus. This ties the Bible together. That's the point that Paul is making here. That is significant on a number of different levels. He'll say later in the passage, the fact that the promise is ultimately to Abraham's offspring And that offspring is Jesus, means that the law that came couldn't possibly do anything to annul the promises because Jesus hadn't come yet. So just kind of at that level, he's making a point. But ultimately, what he's trying to drive home is that the blessings are not, they're ultimately spiritual. The blessings that God promised to Abraham, inherited ultimately by Christ, have to do not with a strip of land in Canaan, but with all the earth. It all belongs to Jesus. And it's not ultimately through the Jewish people that the nations will be blessed, but through Jesus. That promise that all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you is a promise ultimately given to Jesus from God. That's the only way in which we Gentiles could possibly be recipients of the promise as Gentiles. Because ultimately it's to Jesus that we look and not to the law. So the promise ultimately is made to Jesus, but then Paul goes a step further, and we'll come back to this next week, to say this, there is a collective sense of offspring when it comes to Jesus. All those who put their faith in Jesus are in Christ recipients of the blessing. This is coming back to the doctrine of our union with Christ. That everything that God has promised to Jesus is for us because by faith we're united to him. And so when God says to Abraham, the land will be your inheritance. And when that becomes for Jesus, this promise that the earth will be yours, it is yours. Jesus says to us who put their trust in him, the meek shall inherit the earth. The land promise becomes an earth promise for those who have looked to Jesus. And then, of course, there's all the promises concerning the Spirit, whom Paul has been pointing in Galatians. How did you receive the Spirit of God? It was through faith in Christ. The Spirit that that God had been promising all throughout the Old Testament. 
Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26, I will put my spirit within you. I'll give you a new heart, a heart of flesh and not a heart of stone. All these are part of the inheritance that is ours in Jesus Christ. They are spiritual, eternal blessings that are found in him. So the promise is ultimately made to Jesus, but to all who are in Jesus through faith as well. So what then are the implications for your faith today? Some of you came in here this morning weary and broken precisely because you have been looking to law, be it God's law or some law that you've created for life, and you are crushed. And I want you to hear the message loud and clear. There is no law that will bring you life. Paul's point here in this passage is that God's law was never intended to bring you life. Don't look to God's law for life in him. Don't look to any law that you've created for any sense of what you think will bring you life on this earth. There's no life to be found in law. The reason you are crushed this morning is because you're looking to something for life that cannot give it. And that will inevitably leave you weary and broken. Look away from the law for life. Secondly, look instead to Jesus. That's where Paul is trying to direct our gaze in this passage. Keep your eyes not on the law. Keep your eyes on the promise. And to keep the eyes on your promise, the promise, look to Jesus. Keep your eyes on him. (laughs) This great passage in, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, right? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I I love what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. All the blessings of God are yes in Christ. Everything that we would seek to find, to find joy in life, in in this life and the life to come, is found in Jesus. Don't look to the law. It'll crush you. Look to Jesus and live. The reason that Jesus secured the blessing for us, or the means by which Jesus secured the blessings of the covenant for us, is by bearing the curse of the covenant in our place. You remember that great passage. I'm I'm never tired of quoting it. Some of you have heard it for so long, but others of you, maybe this is the first time. In Genesis chapter 13, when God, 15, when God made the promise to Abraham in Genesis 15 and then ratified it by covenant, you remember the command that God gave to Abraham to separate the animal parts. It was a way of, of, of um, communicating to Abraham in a way that made sense in that day and age what it meant for this covenant to be ratified in blood because that's how kings cut covenants back in that day. Animals would be divided and and kings would walk together between the animal parts as a way of saying, if either one of us fails to keep covenant, may it be done to me as I've as it been done to the animals. Right? Does Abraham pass through the animal parts? No, God alone does. God says to Abraham, if either one of us fails to keep covenant, may the curse of the covenant fall on me. Fast forward to the cross, and there's where the curse of the covenant fell. On the one who had faithfully kept the law in our place, 
that we might have life. Don't look to the law for life. Be it God's law or any law that you create for yourself, the law adds nothing to the promise. All the law's demands were fulfilled in Jesus. Look to Jesus. Jesus alone and live. God does not and will not deal with you according to your performance. Do you believe that? Let me say it again. God does not and he will not deal with you according to your performance. He deals with you according to his promises. If you will take that to heart, you will find rest for your soul. Look not to your performance, look to Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are so inclined to look to works in order to somehow merit your favor. That is such a foolish endeavor. It leads to only great pride or ultimately despair. And we miss it. We miss the grace that would be ours. So Lord, we pray that you would help us to turn away from law-keeping as a means of life and look to you for the life that only you can give and have secured for us in your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.